Hey, this is You Had Me at Black. I'm Martina Abraham Zalunga. <sighs> Last week was really tough for me. And I know it was for y'all too. I had a hard time sleeping. My anxiety was through the roof. I couldn't focus. I couldn't concentrate. My mind was constantly racing at 100 miles per hour. I'm feeling a lot better now, thankfully. But I hope that in the midst of your pain and in the midst of your fight and during this very real pandemic, you are taking care of yourselves, finding times to get your emotions out, taking time to rest, and just allowing space for pockets of joy in your days and in your weeks. The great Audre Lorde said it best, caring for myself is not self-indulgence. It is self-preservation. And that is an act of political warfare. If you're new to You Had Me at Black, welcome. This show is a love letter to us. It's a love letter to our stories. We live off of the proverb, those who tell stories rule the world. And our mission is to reclaim the Black narrative and inspire us to walk boldly in our own. We happen to be in the middle of a special series called At the House. You can probably guess what inspired it, but this series is a collaboration with the podcast Wild Black, and it's structured a little differently from our traditional episodes. Each week, we invite y'all to submit stories about a particular topic, and we publish them here. Then over on Wild Black, they follow up with an enlightening conversation with an expert guest who breaks down whatever topic we're covering and what it means for Black communities during COVID, but also just in general. We originally had a different topic for this week, but we quickly switched it up at the start of the uprisings. Because one thing that struck me is just how paralyzed many of us felt, not sure how to channel our emotions into action or protest. But you know, we've been doing this shit forever. Every day we resist white supremacy, we resist racism, we resist sexism, we resist misogyny, transphobia, homophobia, Islamophobia. I mean, the list goes on and on. And it was important for us to remind ourselves and each other just how we've survived and how we've done it before. So that's what this episode is all about. It's seven stories about different times we've protested and the different ways in which we've done so. Before we get to the stories, this episode is brought to you by Identity. They're a one-stop shop for accessing all of your accounts securely across the web. And they're a Black-owned startup, y'all. You know I had to stand. You had me at Black listeners can get started for free at identity.com slash Y-H-M-A-B. It's story time. Sekanda will start us off. At nine years old, my brother and I, who was 
barely a year under me, lived in a neighborhood called Greens Point in Houston, Texas. And this neighborhood is sort of, I don't know if it's strange in other places, but in Houston, you have these parts of town where there's nothing but apartments, but not buildings like you will see somewhere in East Coast. I mean, literal apartments. And this community was fairly new. So it was a community that in the 90s, probably the 80s, it was built for like white folks, right? But here it is, the 90s, and black people have completely taken over. The white flight has already happened, and we're living in apartments that has tennis courts and pools. They're fairly cheap, so there are single mothers and their babies everywhere in this neighborhood, right? It's the hood, but it was super nice, and we loved our community. My mom didn't let us go out a lot, but she would let us walk to the corner store. It was a summer. My brother and I walked to the corner store. And at this time, it was not uncommon for a police officer to be positioned somewhere in the store, right? To have their little spot. When you walk in, you could see them. But there weren't community police officers like people you know. It wouldn't be the same officer there all the time. Just some random officer. So we walk in the store. Here's the random officer, like to the left of us, right? which was not strange. But what was strange is that this particular officer, when we walked in the store, the way that he looked at us, he was red, he was angry. We hadn't did anything. And he said something very like strange to my brother. Don't ask me to remember what was said in the 90s, what he said, I did not know. But do you know what I remember? I remember thinking this man is going to kill him. This man wants to hurt us for no apparent reason. And I, 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 I didn't know exactly what to do. So what I did was I looked at my brother and I told him in my nine-year-old voice, you could be here, we could be wherever we wanna be. This is not his store, right? Why he ain't stop and go anyway? It's not even his neighborhood. We can be wherever we wanna be, right? The police officer didn't escalate uh, the situation. After that, we bought what it was that we needed to buy. And on my way home, all I could think was, why did that grown man want to hurt an eight-year-old boy? What is it that we could have possibly done to make him so angry this white man why was his face so red we hadn't did anything but showed our black self up in a store in our neighborhood and from that moment on I have been speaking up against the police I do not regret it the only thing that I regret is when I haven't spoke up when I see a, a kid that's being killed by police it's not a surprise to me. When I see that a kid had a toy gun and the police just started firing rounds, I understand that. I remember the face of that police officer. And as a grown woman, I have never forgotten it. Next up is Jessica. She's a California girl who went to school in the South. Everything was cool. But she had a physiology class with this one professor known for his rap sheet. 
So we're in class and we're watching this video. It's a video of a child with a hemiplegic gait and the child also has a leg length discrepancy. And all those words really mean are, you know, this person had a difficult time walking. And so we're watching the video and Dr. Ed, that's his name, asks, he says, you know, look, how many of you guys think the leg length discrepancy should be classified as a major or a minor deviation? So the majority of the class raise their hand and they say, we think it's major. And then the rest of us, it's myself and like five or six other students, we raise our hands and we're like, we think it's minor. And so Dr. Ed takes a moment, he thinks about it. And he says, well, since the majority thinks it's major, it's major. <laughs> and so, you know, the group of us who felt like it was minor, we just kind of all look at each other. We're kind of sitting in the same area. And we just look at each other and kind of shake our heads at one another, just like, you know, we are paying $60,000, but what more can we expect from this instructor at this elite institution? So anyway, we chuckle a little bit to ourselves and then I hear him call out, Jessica. And I'm like, yeah. He's like, I need you to leave class. And I'm like, why? He's like, I just need you to leave class. And I said, well, I wasn't the only person laughing. He says, you just, I need you to go. And so realizing that there wasn't much more I could do in that moment beyond like get into a big verbal altercation in front of my class, which would not help me. Um, I got up and I left. And I'd like to give you some backstory. You know, this is my second year in the program and I'd met other students who had shared with me previously to be careful with this instructor because he had uh, a rap sheet, really. He had a history of targeting students of color, targeting women. He was what they called a good old boy from the South. And yeah, I grew up in California, so I didn't know what that really meant. So anyway, I send a quick email to some folks because I see where this might be going. And like as I'm finishing the email, students are coming out of class because it's time for break. So I walk back into the class and I'm like, you know, I got to figure out what's going on. Like maybe we can talk and just figure out what happened. So I ask him, I say, hey, you know, Dr. Ed, can we talk? I'm just concerned about what happened there. And he agrees. He goes, yeah, sure, we can talk. So we go into the other room and I say, so listen, you know, I, I thought we had a, a pretty good professional relationship. You know, I know I'm doing well in classes. and But, you know, lately I've, I'm growing a little bit concerned with with what's going on you know just the other a couple weeks back you singled me out in another class during a gate lecture and you asked me to come up and, and be part of a demonstration and when you didn't see whatever it was you were looking for you expressed to the class that you were concerned that are confused why my feet didn't pronate like the Kenyan cross-country runners you used to work with which I thought was really peculiar because you know I'm not Kenyan and I never ran cross country and I never communicated that either of those things were true. And now today we're in a class where a few of us had the same reaction and you singled me out to leave. And I'm just starting to feel a little bit concerned and like I'm being treated differently. And he, you can see like the energy change in, in his face and he like just looks at me and he says, are you calling me racist? And I remember thinking, whoa, I'm not sure where that came from. And I say to him, well, actually, I only said that I think that you've been treating me differently. This is my first experience with real racism. Like I've definitely been around racists and I've definitely been around people calling me out of my name, but I hadn't been around somebody taking an action against me because of the way that they felt because of the color of my skin. And so this was, I didn't really have the vocabulary for it and I wasn't super aware of it. I clarify, like, actually, I just think you're treating me differently. And he starts yelling, I think you're the most unprofessional student, and da 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 da. And, you know, he just is going on. And I remember saying, Hold up, you're not my father. 
and my father doesn't even yell at me like this so I'm gonna have to leave to which he replied he's like you know this isn't the last you've heard of me as if he was some kind of like TV villain so you know I leave and you know definitely some other things happened following that you know there were definitely some fallout because you know how dare I this young black female say anything to a white male there in the south regardless of how he was treating me differently or not but anyway fast forward fast forward a few months you know so i'm in georgia now and i've just completed my clinical affiliation and the feedback that i got is good and you know everything went well and you know get some communication around a potential job opportunity and like yeah i'm feeling pretty good and so you know i start i share with my ci who also was white and i say you know I, i'm just so relieved because this is the experience that i had and i share about the experience that i just talked about with dr ed and how he responded to me and she says to me, like, wow, you're not the first student to share something like this with me. And she's like, because of that, I've actually considered canceling my relationship with your institution. And I remember just feeling so validated that this person at my institution was problematic. So that was helpful. And I shared the story with Ella, who was somebody else who worked in the facility. And, and Ella was either Black or mixed. And so as I tell her story, you know, I'm like, yeah, you know, and he, he accused me of calling him racist. And she says to me, well, you should have said if the hood fits. So, like I said, my battle was not without getting burned. You know, it's like we remember the pain actually from the aftermath of that so clearly. And it, it happened, you know, over 10 years ago. Um, and I still carry that fear with me. Like, what will happen? What, what more can they take away from me if I do speak up? You know, how will they retaliate? And still, you know, I stand up and I speak out because that's the only power that I do have. And I will say, you know, it didn't happen immediately, but a few years following my tenure at that institution, they did sever their relationship with this professor and his supervisor, who was the person who was protecting him from all of the fallout. So it, it, it you know, it didn't protect me, but I think it did protect the future. And I think mine was just one of the stories that ensured a more equitable experience for future students. And for that reason, it was worth it. Now it's time for CK. She grew up in New York, but a new job required that she move to Boston. You know, they say Boston is the white man's Atlanta. So you know she was bound to encounter some bullshit. It was May 2003 when I left the Empire State and embarked on a new trail. Went to the Bean Beantown, that is, Boston, Massachusetts, going to a place where I didn't know a single soul, but was excited, moving to a brand new city, one that is enriched with history and culture and plenty of nightlife for young people, as well as just a shitload of things to do. I was there working in hospitality and I worked at a hotel. It was a luxury boutique hotel in downtown Boston. In fact, it was a completely different experience. The furnishings, the stylings of the hotel. It was very like chic and just, I don't know, <laughs> upper class, if you will. Something a lot different than what I had been used to. I was excited though, both for moving and doing something so courageous and also because this hotel was interesting and wanted to see the kind of clientele they would have there, celebrities, politicians, all of those kinds of individuals would, would check in. So anyway, I started off as a front desk supervisor 
and very quickly was promoted to reservations supervisor and then reservations manager. As reservations manager, it was my sole responsibility to monitor and optimize the occupancy of the hotel by adhering to sales strategies set forth by the sales department. It was very exciting. Anyway, there was a period of time where we as a team discovered there were some issues with our reservations. People were booking reservations online that we were not aware of. And we would discover that while they had a reservation, a confirmation number, we had no record that they actually made a reservation. And as a result, we found ourselves in some very stressful situations. There was a log that we had to maintain in order to monitor those online reservations so we didn't have those situations come up anymore. I, of course, as the manager, monitored that throughout my shift, whatever time it was. But then, once I left, the log was turned over to the front desk. This was not any different this particular night when I handed it off. Came back the next morning and found out that the front desk was too busy and were not able to manage the reservations. When they passed that information on to the next shift, which would be the overnight, they passed that information on to a person by the name of John, last name doesn't matter, but he was one of the biggest dicks I've ever come across. He said to the person that was doing the pass on, and I quote, let that lazy nigger take care of this herself. He took the book and he tossed it. When I was told this, of course, you know, the blood boiled in my veins. Who the hell was he talking to? Oh, he didn't know, but I was about to teach him. So I complained, went to the general manager, talked about it, was asked to write a letter and to see if I can get any kind of corroborating stories. Your girl did just that. And guess what? His ass was fired. Yep. Fired. Once the general manager came and let me know that that was the case, I jumped up from the seat of my desk, threw my arms around him and said, thank you. And thank God I didn't leave New York to come here to Boston to a hotel that would settle for that. So my story begins with my best friend. Her name is Denise, and we met in college freshman year. Denise is the coolest person I know. She's also the most careless. So when I get an HBO account, I made it clear that I was only sharing it with my closest friends. That, of course, includes Denise. I must have shared my login in our group chat dozens of times, but every other day it feels like Denise is hitting me up about it. Hey, what's your HBO login again? It starts with a B, right? One day I hear my phone buzz in my pocket. It's Denise. Hey girl, I gave your HBO password to my cousin. That's cool, right? She wants to watch Insecure too. Uh, hell no, it's not cool. I don't know your cousin. I think to myself, I need to get control over my shit immediately. That's when I remember identity. It helps me manage all of my accounts in just one place and gives me power over who can access them and my information. With Identity, I can create a secure and unique link to my HBO account just for Denise, and boom, she's good to go. Denise gets to watch her shows, and my password isn't all out in these streets. So when the next time she calls, Hello, Denise, your carelessness will annoy me no longer. Identity is a life savior and a patient savior. I guess the moral of the story is don't let Denise 
or her cousin bug you for your HBO login. Watch Insecure without feeling insecure about who's watching with you. Sign up for Identity. And great news. If you had me at Black, listeners can get started for free at Identity.com slash Y-H-M-A-B. That's Identity. I-D-E-N-A-T-I. When we say acts of resistance, people often think we mean outward expression of protest. But protecting your peace is an important form of resistance. Our next two stories are good examples of that. James's job transferred him to another state, which meant that he and his family, his wife and three sons, had to move and look for a new home. The good news? They would be closer to family in New York City. The bad news? To be close to his job and to good schools, there was a chance they'd end up in a not-so-friendly suburb. Step one was to hire a real estate agent. So I got an agent, and she got busy looking at homes for me. And she finally found a home that she thought I would like. The school districts were very important to us. So she said the Yorktown School District was excellent. Yorktown is a a city in Westchester County, New York, about maybe 40 minutes north of Manhattan. So on a Sunday morning, the agent or she made arrangements for us to inspect the home. Uh, We got a home inspector. He was a white male. The real estate agent was a white female. So we made uh, the appointment to meet with the homeowner. My agent had contacted her and told her that she had a qualified candidate who was coming to check out the home. And it was very likely they were going to make an offer and because we liked the school district, etc. So all was well until we showed up that morning. Nice, bright, sunny morning in spring. And we showed up in the minivan. As soon as my wife and I and the kids got out the van, we were all black, of course. This older white female, about 70 years old, started running towards the gate, waving her hands like a mad woman screaming, no, 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 I do not want to sell my house anymore. My agent was standing there, the inspector was standing there, they were like shaking their heads like, say what? She said, my agent confronted her and said, listen, These are the people that we spoke to on the phone. You had no problem with the fact that they were pre-qualified. They're legally and financially qualified to buy this home. It's against the law for you to prevent them from seeing the home. So we proceeded to check out the home. Now, this woman followed us, my kids and I. So my wife and the kids, we were walking from room to room with the agent with us. And she followed us everywhere as if she thought we were gonna steal something. I mean, she was like a hawk. The inspector, he was so mad, he was shaking his head. I I spoke with him privately afterwards. He said, man, he felt that she was like a Nazi person. That was his description of her. And he was very upset. Long story short, we had no private moment to really talk about the home until we got back And my wife and I said, well, what are we going to do? I mean, this woman is clearly racist. And we had to make a choice whether we're going to fight her or just move on to another home. And after 
a few minutes of thinking about that, we decided we were we were going to move on. It was very possible that there were more people like this woman in that neighborhood of Yorktown, and we did not want to put our kids through that type of racial animus at such young a young age. And maybe the school district was racist as well. So rather than put them through that, we decided to uh, or rescind the deal that we were going to sign with this homeowner and move on to another home. Now, we'll hear from Brianna. She started a new position as a host at a restaurant and was quickly met with a hostile environment. When you move to a new place, you can expect that sometimes you're going to be put outside your comfort zone. And I would have to say hosting was that for me. I already knew it was going to be a cutthroat business, but I didn't expect my boss to be such a narcissist and misogynist. I could tell right away from her interactions and conversations that I wasn't going to be his favorite. I ended up working at the restaurant for a year. I remember towards the end of the time that I was there, I was dealing with some health issues, but I definitely made it known. I remember one day I went to lunch and the tension in the air was so thick and I thought nothing of it. When I came back, the tension was even thicker than usual and I already told myself, Brianna, if this is some bullshit, clock out. Sure enough, as I'm preparing for the large party we have that night, I look over to my left and I just see a group of people huddled in a circle, side-eyeing me. I felt like I was in high school again. It was so childish. And it got even worse when my boss walked over and asked if she could speak to me. There goes that bullshit I was talking about. Prior to this day, I had been sat down by my boss multiple times for numerous reasons that really were not worth being sat down about. When a person is dealing with health issues and it's known, wouldn't you give them a little more empathy? It even got so bad to the point that I had a coworker come up to me and ask me what was the problem, and I honestly had no answer for him. It was obvious I was being picked on, Every day. So when she sat down and started talking about, do you even want to be here? Do you know what's going on tonight? Are you prepared for the party? I really just wanted to ask her, what is the point of all this and why are you doing this right now? But instead, I asked her if she can get the GM. I didn't want to hear from her and I just wanted to get the answer. When he refused to come out and talk to me, I had it. That was a disrespect, and I immediately grabbed my purse, and I clocked out. I spent the rest of my day on the beach, and I never looked back. They continued to put me on the schedule, but I didn't continue to let them disrespect me. Next, it's time for India. She's an actress, and sometimes she has to fight for her characters just as much as she does for herself. So I was working on a new work through a festival there and my character is the only black character in the play and at one part of the play in the very beginning it's supposed to happen around let's say like the late 1950s early 60s and my character is supposed to show up to a home that she is unsure of what she's going to find there, but she shows up to this home and it is a room full of white women and she is a black woman. 
And the way the scene was written was that the black woman comes in and then everyone is sort of, oh, a black woman. They don't really know how to react. (laughs) The black woman is supposed to sort of assert herself and her position and I guess right to be there. And every single time it just felt really awkward and uncomfortable. And then that informed my performance throughout the rest of that scene as being awkward and uncomfortable even though my character was supposed to be comfortable after a while but that never really happened and the reason that never really happened for me as an actor and I couldn't do that for the characters because she comes into that space that technically she was invited to but yet she has to do the work to make everyone else feel comfortable because the way it was written was I was sort of left to stand at the doorway (laughs) and like bring myself in. I did not agree with that. I felt like if you invite this person to your home and you're prepared for whomever may show up to this secret meeting, then that person shouldn't have to do the work to be comfortable. The host should say, let me welcome you in because I'm sorry, I'm pretty sure any black woman would turn around and leave. I don't know that she would stay. So it just didn't feel like it made sense to me. And then later on, there are a few moments where the other uh, characters either say something overtly racist or there's just a whole bunch of microaggressions. And yet somehow I'm supposed to stay in the room. If you haven't guessed by now, the playwright was not black. (laughs) So... And I just kept going, this does not make sense. This cannot be a thing that happens. And finally, I just said, I really feel like the scene needs work. And I got so much resistance from the director about wanting to do that. Like she didn't believe me when I said something has to change here because this is a hostile environment for this black character. Why does she stay? And she was willfully not listening and then kind of combative and very defensive And it was so uncomfortable, like I was shaking. And no one in that room came to my defense. It was just me. And it was just like that moment in the play where I didn't feel welcome in that room. But I kept fighting for that character and fighting for myself because it was the right thing to do. And eventually another actor stepped in and said, you know what, my character should just walk over and welcome her in and bring her in. And when she did that, that changed the tone of that scene and we got to where it was supposed to be but I had to be uncomfortable and and rail against whatever to make that happen and I've never forgotten that feeling you know it was a couple years ago but I've never forgotten that feeling I have since gotten apologies for that from everyone involved but it should never have come to a point where I had to say, please give this black character this dignity. Please give me this dignity and welcome me into this space. But I would do it again. And I have done it again since then. We finish this episode with Queen, who turns to art when justice fails. A few years ago, I was working one of my positions in youth development. And one of our locations was based at an elementary school. I had this one student. She had this beautiful onyx hair that fell down her back. She had these bright almond eyes. They were like these deep pools. And 
She had these high round cheeks and dimples that I was always envious of and this deep mahogany skin. And she also had a whole lot of fire and wit and sass within her. I spent a lot of days completely entertained by her energy and her presence. And some days a little overwhelmed by the sharpness of that tongue she has. But all the days she brought me joy and I was really glad to work with her. She, even in her rebellion, reminded me of myself. Well, I came into work one day and I noticed that she was different. And I can't remember if her colleagues told me or if she, it came up while we were together, but it turns out there was a boy in school that day who told her that he was gonna burn her on a cross. Needless to say, I was enraged. I was so irate and hurt. So I immediately start, you know, talking to teachers and our directors and I couldn't comprehend why they didn't care. Um, they, They kind of brush it off as, you know, a hurtful thing that a kid does, but I knew the gravity of that statement. I saw the way her head started to hang in that moment when we were talking about it. I saw this girl who's usually full of brightness and brilliance. I saw her eyes dim. I saw her demeanor change as she shifted in front of me. I saw how she tried to wash away the hurt and act like it wasn't a big deal. It was a significant deal. And I knew that moment and I knew that feeling. So I felt that feeling. I saw her innocence being stolen from her. I saw the reality that so many black girls face. That moment where you realize you don't get to be a girl, that catalyst, for the beginning of a lifetime of suffering that only we understand. And I so wanted her to just be able to be a 10-year-old black girl. I was so mad that her uh, fresh out of college, wet behind the ears, white teacher handled it clumsily. So I scribbled down my thoughts because I know this story. It's my story. I wanted to know how... I could take back our power. And this poem is what came of it. When a boy tells a 10 year old black girl that he will burn her on a cross and form him, that she has been fired since before time began and a dark skin is simply evidence of the burn. You tell him her melanin, the mother and the magma at the core of the earth. Amber, ember is embryo. The axis been her backbone. Hang her on a cross. Watch her resurrect every three days. Christ's DNA, watch her incineration. The rates become solar. Whom the sun sets free is free indeed. Even gutted, she is the giving tree. You think she's scared of a little fire. Say her hair barbed wire. I say all this kink gon' cut your mouth if you're not careful. Barrettes caught in your throat. If you figure your words a match, see black girls be the fire God sends next time. We burn blood at the roots, our veins in the leaves. So yes, I dare you, set her on fire and watch her blaze.
I hope you prefer cremation. The melanin deficient be the most flammable. Thanks for listening to You Had Me at Black. You can catch part two on the Wild Black podcast on Sunday, June 14th. I hope that if you needed it, these stories sparked a sense of action for you. And at the very least, reminded you who the fuck you are. We come from freedom fighters who use their gifts and whatever they had at their disposal, not just to survive, but to create and to live. And that brings me into our topic for the next cycle of At The House. Believe it or not, we try to limit the number of stories about racism on the show. Not because it's something that we don't experience every day, but because we're so much more than our oppression. I've been re-inspired lately by an old Toni Morrison interview. After she won the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1993, she spoke with Charlie Rose. And she talked about how racism is at the crux of white people's identity. And in her perfectly calm and chilling voice, she challenged them. Who are you without your racism? Are you any good? Are you still strong? And it made me think about the same question. Who am I without racism? As Black and African diasporic people, you know, it's really hard to separate our struggle from our identity. But as we fight for liberation and freedom, it's really important for us to imagine what we look like free of any bondage. And that goes for society, but also for ourselves as individuals. So for next time, the topic is radical imagination. We want stories about a time you felt complete freedom, unbound and 100% yourself. Describe that moment to us in detail and tell us that story. And if you've never had a moment like that, that's okay. Given the world that we live in, it's certainly not expected and it's not common. So instead, I'll ask you to imagine yourself completely free and unbound. Who are you? Describe that person in detail and send it in. We'll need responses in by Wednesday, June 17th.